Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, the remarkable story of a very old and very sacred book you've probably never heard of. The Aleppo Codex is considered by many Bible scholars to be the most perfect copy of the Hebrew Bible in existence. Yet most of us have never heard of it. Four years ago, Mati Friedman set out to find out why. Mati's a reporter based in Jerusalem, and what he discovered was that the recent history of the Aleppo Codex is dark and mysterious. Specifically, there's a veil of secrecy around how it is that the Codex changed hands going from the Jews of Aleppo in Syria to tightly held institutional control in the state of Israel. Even more mystifying is the question of when and how large portions of the Codex went missing and remain missing to this very day. We're talking to Mati Friedman today from his office in Jerusalem about where his research led and about some of the stories and characters he came across along the way. Mati, welcome to Vox Tablet. Hi, Sarah. So first things first, what is the Aleppo Codex? The Aleppo Codex is arguably the most important Jewish book. It's the perfect copy of the Hebrew Bible. And it's also the oldest copy of the complete Hebrew Bible with all 24 books. It was written around the year 930 AD in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee by a scribe and a scholar. And it was designed to be the authoritative version of the divine word. And that was and remains extremely important for a people that is scattered and that is held together only by a book, only by its understanding of the written word. So uh, for the people of the book, the Aleppo Codex is the book. Now, as you explain in the book, the Codex made its way from Tiberias to Jerusalem and then on to Cairo, where it lived in the library of the great 12th century scholar Maimonides. When did it get to Aleppo and what did it come to mean for the Jewish community there? The text which is written in Tiberias, ends up in Jerusalem. It gets stolen by the Crusaders when they capture Jerusalem in 1099, and it's ransomed by the Jews of Fustat, which is right next to Cairo. And that's how it ends up on Maimonides' table. Um, the grandson of Maimonides' great-grandson moved from Fustat to Aleppo sometime in the 14th century. And we know that he took some of the books that were in Maimonides' library with him to Aleppo, and th this codex appears to have been among those books. We have accounts from travelers who passed through Aleppo in those years and who mention this great book that is in the possession of the community. So over the years, the book is guarded by the Jews of Aleppo. It's, it's studied, but as time goes by, it becomes less a text that's studied and more, more of a religious icon. The Jews of Aleppo would pray in the grotto in the great synagogue where it was kept. They would light candles there, but most of them had never seen the book. It was kept in a safe with two locks, two keys, each held by a different community elder, so that the safe could only be opened if both were present. It was taken out on occasion to show important visitors, um, but it was never photographed in full. Um, it was never moved from the synagogue, and it was hidden in, in this grotto in the synagogue for six centuries until the mid-20th century. You start the book with the very dramatic events of the mid-20th century, in fact. Uh, 1947 is when the United Nations 
voted to grant Israel statehood. And while this was a thrilling event really for Jews all over the world, it proved devastating for communities like the Jewish community in Aleppo and throughout the Middle East, which faced a backlash uh, from Arab nationalists, very angry over this vote. What did this declaration mean for the Jews of Aleppo and for the Aleppo Codex? What happened was that the vote triggers an outbreak of violence. It should be noted that the violence didn't start with the partition vote. There had been a kind of growing antagonism toward the Jews of Arab lands in the decades leading up to the partition vote, which had something to do with the rise of ethnic nationalism. It wasn't only because of the creation of the state of Israel. But the partition vote in 1947 triggers a spate of violence across the Arab world, and there are riots targeting local Jewish communities. And in Aleppo, the day after the vote, mobs begin stalking Jewish areas. They burn homes, they burn stores, they burned 18 synagogues, including the Great Synagogue of Aleppo, and the Codex disappears. And rumors reach Israel, according to which the Codex has been lost in the fire. So after the riot, the book is thought to have disappeared. And it uh, takes a few months before it turns out that that is in fact not true, that the book's destruction was a, a cleverly engineered fabrication, which was meant to throw Syrian authorities off the trail. The Jews had information that the Syrian government wanted to get its hands on the Codex, which was known to be very valuable. And several months go by before Bible scholars in Jerusalem, which is very interested in the Codex, they understand that the Codex has in fact survived. How the Aleppo Codex made it from the grotto in the Aleppo synagogue into Israel is really the stuff of a thriller. You've got tales of false leads and twists and various turns. And I don't want you to give it all away, but I do wonder if there's one particular chapter from that journey that you want to share with us. It's it's true. The way the, the Codex makes it from Aleppo to Jerusalem is a very dramatic story. Um, the, the Codex is spirited from the synagogue immediately after the riots, and it's hidden eventually in the storeroom of a very prominent Jewish merchant in one of the Aleppo bazaars. And it remains there for a decade. In the meantime, scholars in Israel, and especially the president of Israel in those years, who was also a scholar himself, Yitzhak Ben-Svi, are trying very uh, hard to get their hands on the Codex. They're trying to convince the Aleppo Jews to smuggle it out of Aleppo to Jerusalem. Um, but the Aleppo Jews will not part with the book because the book is the symbol of their community. Um, and of course, there are beliefs connected to the book, according to which if the book is moved, the community will be destroyed. And as I note in the book, when I interviewed old people from Aleppo, they used to kind of chuckle when they would recount that superstition. And then they would stop chuckling and they'd say, but you know, that actually happened. And because, of course, the book does leave Aleppo and the community is destroyed. Um, Ten years after, after the riot, the rabbis in Aleppo understand that the Jewish community of Aleppo, which has been there for more than 2,000 years, is dying. And they decide that they have to get the Codex out of Aleppo and they have to get it to Israel. They contact a member of the community who is a cheese merchant who has been given permission to leave Syria, which is rare. Jews are not allowed to legally leave Syria at this time. But the cheese merchant, whose name was Murad Faham, 
has uh, an exit visa, which is very rare, and the rabbis in Aleppo decide to take advantage of this to get the book out. And the night before Faham is about to leave Aleppo with his family, a messenger comes with a cloth sack, and in the sack is the codex, and Faham packs the codex in his washing machine, loads it onto a truck, and the codex leaves Aleppo for the first time in 600 years, en route to the Turkish border, and from there to Israel. So smuggling the codex out of Syria was obviously a great feat. And then the book became mired in a custody battle. You write in the book that the trial was, quote, on the surface, a legal dispute between two sides over an object of great worth. But it was more than that. The Jerusalem trial was an argument over who owned the patrimony of the diaspora and thus about the nature of Judaism, exile, and the state of Israel, unquote. Tell us a little bit about this trial, both about the legal dispute and about what you see as its wider implications. The trial is is fascinating. It's at the heart of the book. The, the transcripts of the trial have never been published before. In fact, the existence of the trial has only ever been acknowledged in passing in the uh, writing about the Codex that has existed until now. Now, in the official story of the Codex, which is the one you'll find in museum labels and in the writing about the codex that that has existed until now the rabbis in aleppo realized that their community was dying and they sent the manuscript to israel to be given to yitzhak ben svi who was the president of israel and this kind of makes sense it was judaism's most important book and yitzhak ben svi was the president of the jewish state there's kind of a neat logic to that story and uh, the story isn't true and when the book uh, arrived in Israel, it was caught up in a very bitter and very interesting um, legal battle over who owned it. When it arrived, it reached the hands of the state, and the Aleppo Jews could not understand how that happened. This was their most precious spiritual possession, and though they understood why it had been moved from Aleppo, they did not understand why it had left the hands of the Aleppo community. Um, there was no communication at the time between Israel and Syria, so they couldn't ascertain the intentions of the rabbis who had sent the book out. But the Aleppo Jews, um, they went to a rabbinic court in Jerusalem and they sued the government to get their book back. And that's quite extraordinary. Israel in the 1950s, of course, is a highly centralized state run by labor Zionists, run by Mapai, which is Ben-Gurion's party and ben party. It's very much a country run by people from Eastern Europe, not by people from Aleppo or from Baghdad, even though the country's full of Jews who came from the Arab world, but they're, uh, they're not in positions of power for the most part. But this community will not give up ownership of the Codex, and they take the state court. And there's a trial that lasts four years. It includes fascinating testimony from all the people who are involved in the movement of the Codex from Aleppo to Jerusalem. And it was through the trial transcripts that I understood that the story of how the Codex moved was much more interesting and much dirtier than the accepted story. Um, the, the trial is centered on a technical question, which is what was the courier told to do with the Codex when he reached Israel? That's really what they're arguing about in court. But beyond that legal question, there is a much greater one, which is unfolding between a small community that has existed for thousands of years in the diaspora and which never really saw Aleppo as exile. And on the other side are the leaders and the scholars of the new state of Israel who believe that the state of Israel's 
creation has superseded the existence of the diaspora. So the Aleppo Jews might have guarded this codex for 600 years and they did a great job and thank you very much. But now that the state of Israel exists, we represent the Jewish people and we are going to have this book, which is Judaism's most important book. And that's really what the trial is about. Now, there's one other major chapter in this whole story, and that has to do with the fact that pages, in fact, many pages are missing from the Aleppo Codex. The official history is that these pages were destroyed by the fire in the Aleppo synagogue back in 1947. But in the book, you provide considerable evidence that that's probably not true. And I don't want you to give away too much, but I do want you, if you can briefly tell us what pages are in fact missing and what are some of the leads that you followed in trying to figure out exactly what happened to them. The Aleppo Codex, when it was written, consisted of approximately 500 parchment pages. What exists today in Jerusalem is 295 parchment pages. So we're talking about some 200 pages that are missing, roughly 40% of the manuscript. It was thought for many years that they had simply been burned in the fire in the synagogue in 1947, which made sense. Um, the surviving pages of the manuscript have a strange purplish mark on the bottom outer corner. And for a long time, it was thought that this was a burn mark. And it was proof that the book had been singed in the fire and that the 200 pages or so that are missing had also been burned. In the 80s, however, the codex is brought to the Israel Museum for restoration, and an expert at the Israel Museum runs a battery of tests on the manuscript with the help of a microbiologist, and he discovers that the burn mark is not, in fact, a burn mark. It's fungus. And in fact, there's no sign that the codex was ever burned. And that changes the whole story. Because if the codex wasn't burned, then the missing pages weren't lost in the fire, then where are the missing pages? It's important to note that the missing pages include the most important pages of the manuscript. They include the Torah. And um, there's also a chunk missing from the end of the codex, including the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. And there are a few other smaller pieces missing from from the middle of the codex. Um, when the the expert at the Israel Museum debunks the fire theory, the, the official story that replaced the story of the fire is the one that has existed until now. It's one that I quoted quite credulously when I wrote the first story about the codex that I wrote as a correspondent for the AP. Uh, I wrote a 1,300-word you know, story about it, and the, the, the official version that I heard from the academics who are the custodians of the codex was that Aleppo Jews came to the synagogue after the riot, picked up pieces of the codex, and took it with them. And indeed, in the 1980s, two pages of the Codex surfaced in Brooklyn. One was a whole page from the Book of Chronicles that surfaced in 1982. And one was a smaller fragment from the Book of Exodus, which surfaced about five years later. The fragment from, from Exodus had been laminated and was kept in the wallet of an old guy from Aleppo named Shmuel Sabag who had left Aleppo for Brooklyn. And he carried this fragment of the codex in his wallet as a good luck charm. He thought it had helped him survive open heart surgery. 
And um, these two fragments seem to support the idea that, yes, the missing pieces had been taken by people who came to the synagogue in the aftermath of the riot and who took them. But I dug a bit deeper and, and discovered that story, too, wasn't true. And I found, to my surprise, that the the academic experts who are the custodians of the codex, who I, as reporters, tend to do, we treat academic kind of as as the voice of, of reason, an objective uh, observer into a story when we write about things we don't totally understand. I hadn't understood that in this story, the academics are not objective observers. They're involved in the story and they have something to hide. Ta-da! <laughs> We're going to leave it there, but... As the daughter of an academic, of course, I take umbrage. Well, I'm the son of an academic. We're, we're in the same boat. Your book uh, raises so many questions and exposes so much uh, in terms of corruption and custodianship. Uh, I wonder, do you think it will have any impact on the fate of the Aleppo Codex going forward? That's, that's an excellent question, and I'd really like to know the answer. Um, the, the story of the Codex has basically been dormant for about... 20 years. It's been 20 years since any serious investigative work has been done in this story. And I'm hoping that the publication of this book will revive interest in this manuscript. And I hope it revives interest not just in the general public, which should know about the Aleppo Codex, but also in the in the Aleppo community. I'm not sure how many people in the Aleppo Jewish community, which is still a very tightly knit, very insular, very successful uh, Jewish community, I'm not sure to what extent they're aware of the story of the Aleppo Codex and how it became the property of the Israeli government. Um, I, I would, it'll also be interesting to see if there's debate in Israel about the way the manuscript has been treated. There, there are interesting questions raised by the book, and I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine. Mati Friedman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Sarah. Mati Friedman is a former correspondent for the Associated Press. He now writes for the Times of Israel. He lives in Jerusalem, and his new book is called The Aleppo Codex, a true story of obsession, faith, and the pursuit of an ancient Bible. It's just out from Algonquin Books. As always, we would love to know what you thought of our conversation. Post a comment at tabletmag.com or send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Our podcast is Vox Tablet. We are produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next time.